are now listening to the December 12th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, Sermon, and Praying for the Next Generation. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with Story of Kings. Last week, we shared the story of Joram, the ninth king of Israel, in 2 Kings chapter 3 to chapter 9, verse 26. In our last episode, we saw how God promised Israel that he would hand Moab over to them. Yet, when they heard about the king of Moab sacrificing his firstborn son, to their idol god, Chemosh, they were overcome with fear, totally forgetting about God's promise. They foolishly became fearful of an idol over God's wrath, and they all fled. As time moved on, the Bible tells us how God was working on the Israelites and waiting for them to come to their senses despite their continuing rebellious ways. Now and then, there were skirmishes between Aram and Israel. One of them was the war between Aram and Israel as recorded in 2 Kings chapter 6 and 7. The king of Aram was setting up battle stations to fight against Israel. Every time they were about to attack, the prophet Elisha told the king of Israel, Joram, where the Aramean soldiers were and helped him deflect their plans. Although Joram and the Israelites continued to do evil, God would not leave them, but protected them instead. He wanted Joram and the people of Israel to come back to him. In the meantime, the king of Aram was puzzled how the Israelites would know the locations of their war parties, and as their plans became undermined time and time again, he became enraged. He called his servants thinking there had to be a traitor among them, sneaking out information to the Israelites. He demanded them to tell him who that might be. Then one of his servants answered that there was a prophet in Israel who was telling the king of Israel all their secrets. His name was Elisha. Once he learned that, the king of Aram ordered his soldiers to find where Elisha was and to bring him in. During that time, Elisha was in Dothan, which was about 11 miles away to the northeast from Samaria, where the king of Israel was at. Needless to say, now being aware of how his plans had been frustrated, the king of Aram decided to close in on Elisha in Dothan. He sent his horses and chariots and a sizable army to Dothan by night and surrounded the city. Imagine the spectacle it must have created when the people of Dothan woke up to the scene. Sure enough, Elisha's attendant rose early and went out and saw a large Aramean army surrounding the city. Startled, he ran back to tell Elisha that an Aramean army was about to overtake the city. Elisha then calmly told the attendant not to be afraid because those who were protecting them 
were more numerous than those who were in the Aramean army. Elisha prayed to God to open the attendant's eyes to see how God was protecting them. Then the attendant's eyes were opened and witnessed the horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. When the Aramean army came close, Elisha prayed to God to blind them. God blinded the Aramean army as Elisha prayed. Blinded, they did not know where to turn. Elisha told them to follow him, and they did. Eventually, Elisha led them to the middle of Samaria. As said earlier, Samaria was the city where the king and the people of Israel lived. Elisha led the Aramean army to the center of Israel by blinding their eyes. Once they were there, Elisha prayed to God to open their eyes so that they could see where they were, and God opened their eyes. They realized they were in the center of Israel, surrounded by the Israelite army. Instead of besieging the Israelites, they were now besieged. Learning that he had the Aramean army in his custody, Joram, king of Israel, asked the prophet Elisha if he should kill them. To the contrary, Elisha told Joram to prepare bread and water so that they could eat and drink and then be sent back to Aram. Elisha wanted the Aramean army to remember how God of Israel was protecting Israel. The God of Israel was capable of covering and uncovering their eyes, and he wanted to let them know about God's mercy. With that, the Aramean army returned to Aram and never came back to attack Israel. However, after some time, Ben-Hadad became king of Aram, and he lacked understanding about the mighty God of Israel. He gathered all his army and went to attack Samaria. The size of his forces was much greater than the one that had been sent to capture Elisha. The Aramean forces surrounded Samaria and cut off all supplies and communications with the outside. Under siege, the people of Samaria ran out of food. To make matters worse, there was a great famine. 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 25-29 to 29 show how severe the famine was. People were hungry and became desperate for anything to eat. They even bought and sold a donkey's head, an unclean animal, at a very high price. Once the hunger got the better of them and they began losing their minds, they even ate their own children. Their king Joram tore his clothes and put on a sackcloth knowing how severe and desperate the situation was. All could see how grieved he was. However, his grieving was not repentance. Rather, it signaled how angry he was. He thought these things happened because God was against them. He went after God's prophet Elisha with intent to kill him. Joram was too foolish to realize that God's wrath was to help him to realize his faults and turn back to God. But instead, he was trying to put all the blame on Elisha, God's prophet. So what do you think happened to Elisha? We'll continue with the story of Kings next time. Have a blessed week. 
Next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary PHX in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Searching for Christmas. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Luke chapter 2. 
Of course, I'm, I always look at the Christmas story and these narratives about Jesus' birth, and I, I pray, Lord, show me something new, because I have to teach this for the 40th time. You know, how, what do you find new? And I tell you, I got something. The Lord just spoke to my heart. I want to share it with you. Luke chapter 2. And we're going to begin with the 25th verse, Luke chapter 2, verse 25. Joseph and Mary had brought Jesus to the temple after his birth, and they're fulfilling some religious obligations. I don't want to get into all of that. And a man named Simon approached them. Now, we don't know a lot about him, but I think we can tweeze out some things. We don't know his age. We don't know what he did for a job. We don't know his tribe. We don't know whether he was a Sadducee, a Pharisee, or a who cares, you see. You know, we don't know any of that. But this much we do know. He was a man of God and a picture of the kind of believer we want to be. So I want to look at verse 25. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Right there. I mean, there's so much right there. First of all, he was a righteous and devout man. There is an example for us. He followed the Lord. He was devoted to the things of the Lord, much like you. You're following the Lord. The Lord is first in your life. You're devout in your practices. Jesus is first. You meet with other believers. You're a devout Christian. A lot of people say they're Christians, but they're not devout, are they? They're not devout Christians. He's a devout man. And secondly, it says he was waiting for the Savior. Look at verse 25, the second part. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel And the Holy Spirit was upon him. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Israel, right at this point, is is in trouble. And when the Messiah comes, he would be the one who would come and he would console, he would comfort Israel. Simeon wasn't just looking. It says he was waiting, waiting for the Messiah. In Greek, this is a compound word. It's two words put together. The word means to receive, one word means to receive or to welcome, the other means toward, to welcome toward, to welcome toward. What does that mean? Well, being a grandpa three times, just to throw that out there again, to receive toward. You know, as I I watched the kids, and only one, but we watched our three, you know, as they were growing up, and then now the three so far, when you, you watch your grandkids or your children begin to walk, you know, they, they start to, you know, they're pulling themselves up, they're kind of holding on to the coffee table or whatever's around, and they're, they're, they're beginning those first, they're not even steps yet toward walking. Then you begin to see them take that first step. And so you pull out your cell phone, you know, nowadays, and oh, let's look, let's look, okay. Now, of course, everyone thinks that, every parent thinks that's the first step. Actually, it was a fall. But, you know, our child walks sooner than everyone, you know. But when they're walking, you lean toward them, don't you? Nobody goes, oh, the kid's starting to walk, you know. Everybody's what? What do you do? 
you lean toward, you receive toward. And so as that child is taking the first step, you're ready to receive that child, amen? And so you're leaning toward, you're receiving toward that little one. And when they do, it's like, oh, you know? In our house, I say, wow, you know? Simeon was receiving toward in his heart. He was leaning toward, when's the Messiah gonna come? And when the Messiah comes, yes, yes, I'll receive him into my heart. Simeon also, as you look at verse 27, was led by the Holy Spirit. And he came, look at verse 27, it says, and he came in the Spirit into the temple or by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit led him, And when the parents brought in the child, uh, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he was led by the Holy Spirit. And we're gonna see in a minute what that means to be led by the Holy Spirit and how important that was in this whole incident. Fourth, God had given Simeon a special promise. Look at verse 26. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. Here again, the Holy Spirit's working in his life, leading him, speaking to him, sharing with him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Wow, that's a specific request, right? You're going to live until you see the Messiah. You're not going to go blind because you've got to be able to see him, right? Now, because of this, people think he was old. That doesn't mean he was old necessarily. God could give you that promise. And a lot of people died very young in those days. But you're going to live to see the Messiah. You're going to live for that day. You will not die until that specific promise is fulfilled. So did God fulfill that specific promise? Yes, he did. We've got Simeon looking for the anointed one, the Messiah, to come to Israel. The Holy Spirit had told him that you're going to see the Messiah. But what did he get? (laughs) A baby? Just over a month old? Wait a minute. That's not what I was looking for. I had never expected that. Now, we're not told how Simeon responded. And I'm not saying this was the case with him. But I'm going to say the case might be with me. I would be a little disappointed in God's answer to his promise. I mean, come on. Have you ever been, you don't have to raise your hand, but have you ever been disappointed with God's answer to your prayers? Okay, do raise your hand. Yes. Have you ever, don't raise your hands. Have you ever been disappointed with God? I would say universally, probably all of us. I wonder what Simeon expected. You'll recall at the time he was living, the need was for a king, someone who could expel the Romans from their land to get rid of this, these puppet kings like Herod that are just, you know, working for the Roman government and and to reform the priesthood that was so corrupt, the, the high priesthood was just given to, you know, to whomever, you know, could pull the most strings. And so they needed someone who could get rid of these people. And that seemed to be the obvious pressing need. But sometimes it could be, well, maybe even most of the time, what we think we need isn't what God knows we need. A lot of the time, what we think we need isn't what God knows we need. 
We think something might be good for us, but God knows it would harm us. I'm glad that God loves me, and you must be glad that God loves you enough to not let you get bad things. And I'll go back to this kid analogy now because I'm stuck in that for a few years now. But there are certain things you say no to, right? No. Now, I love to give cookies to my grandkids. That's how you score points in this world. That's why kids love their grandparents, you know. So I don't try to do it behind the parents' backs. I really don't. You know, I, I want to respect their boundaries and all. But we do have a cookie jar, and they know where the cookies are. And is cookie? Cookie? Wow. Cookie? Wow. Wow. You know, if you don't listen to her, she keeps saying that. Until, cookie? So I give her a cookie. Now, a cookie's a good thing, but too many cookies is a bad thing, right? So God may have good things for you, but, but you want more and more and more, and God says, you know, no more, and then maybe you cry, and you have your, your breakdown, you know, because you're just immature. You are. And you need to grow up. God knew that the greatest need was for a savior, no matter how he came, was for a savior to come. And the prophet had said, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and this son would be the Messiah. Simeon was a prophet. I mean, when you read verses 28 and onward, he, he prophesies about how this child is the salvation. Look at verse 28. He takes Jesus in his arms and he blesses God, he praises God, and he says, verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. Lord, I can just die right now. This is, ah, this, my life is complete. It's enough. Take me, Lord. Now you're, you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Who was his eyes looking at right now? Jesus. Whose salvation? Jesus. Your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples. Jesus is a light of revelation to the Gentiles. So here we are. We're not Jewish, but we're mentioned right in the middle of the Christmas story. Somebody say amen. Yes. This isn't just a Jewish thing, but this is also a Gentile thing. Right in the middle of the beginning of all of this. And for the glory of your people Israel and its Father and his mother marveled at what was being said about him. You're kidding. I just seen his diaper. That's amazing what you're saying. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, blesses the parents. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is to be opposed. And the words, if you believe in Jesus, you'll be lifted up. If you don't, you're going to fall down and he will be opposed his cross, his message will be opposed by some. And then he has a special message for Mary that is tragic and must have been something very frightening to her because he says, and a sword, see what he says in verse 35, and a sword will pierce through your own soul, he says to Mary. Mary is going to have a heartbreak. The heartbreak will be watching her son be called illegitimate her whole life. Her heartbreak will be seeing her son die on the cross. 
That will be her heartbreak. And he says, Mary, I just want you to know that. God's preparing her. Don't you love the fact that God may give you a word preparing you? You're not sure exactly what that means, but he's preparing you. Verse 36. Now, another person is there, there in the temple area. Her name is Anna. Look at verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel. Now, this is interesting. We have like prophetess. Mary was a prophetess. I mean, Mary prophesies just as soon as the angel speaks to her, she prophesies. Then we have uh, Simeon. He's a prophet. He's prophesying. Then we have Zechariah. He's prophesying. And now we have another woman, Anna, who's prophesying. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years. Now, we do know this about her. Having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, she was only married seven years and then a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer. For she's 84, only married seven short years. For 60 years, she's been ministering in the temple. She was a volunteer serving the Lord, not complaining about her lot in life, which was sad, but I'm just going to throw my life then into serving the Lord. God's people will be my family. And think about it. She probably served in some really poor circumstances because I told you the high priest was not a good man. Those high priests weren't. And they, they didn't have a good system in place. But she, I'm serving the Lord, not people. Verse 38, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She began to prophesy about Jesus and praising him and telling his parents what he's going to do. Both Simeon and Anna were true believers in Jesus. You recall, Simeon says, behold, my eyes have seen your salvation. He believed that Jesus was salvation. And Anna, we're told, believes that Jesus is the redemption of Jerusalem. He is the redeemer come to his people. They're both true believers. The other thing I see, and I was referring to earlier, was how they both were led by the Holy Spirit. Think about the timing for Simeon to be the right place, the right time, when Joseph and Mary and Jesus are coming to the temple. Now, the temple was huge. The temple platform and and the temple area was huge. There were thousands of people milling around. There were colonnades. There were courtyards. I mean, it was a huge place. And so for them to have this intersection was amazing. And then to have Anna also intersect. I mean, come on. This is a God thing. I love it when I see God work that way in my life, don't you? It's like, this is not a coincidence. This is a divine appointment. Amen? Amen. This happens. I got to tell you something that happened a week ago. I was, um, I was just going through some stuff, and Leslie said, hey, why don't you just spend some time with the Lord? And so, like, isn't that a good idea? You know, why didn't... <laughs> 
So where was I? Why didn't I think of that? And so I thought, okay, you know, get my Bible. And then I think, I want to get maybe another book. And I have books, gang. I have thousands and thousands and thousands of books. So I'm just thinking, Lord, which one should I, which one should I look at? I'm just scanning them. And it's like the Lord said that one, green. Pulled it. There was a marker. I thought, what is this? The title of the chapter was exactly about what I was going through. Exactly. It was like God said, oh, let me type you a memo. How does that happen? How does that happen? That's a God thing, right? That's kind of like the Simeon and Anna and Jesus and all. And it happens to us. You know, right time, right place. You get that parking spot that, you know, not kidding. You know, that's, that's low on the spiritual priority here. But, but, you know, that's kind of like, that's a God thing at Christmas. No. <laughs> right time, right place. God is so good. But they were led by the Holy Spirit. That just doesn't happen unless the Holy Spirit is leading you and they listen to the Holy Spirit. And I'm, and I don't know, maybe they didn't even understand that. It probably wasn't the Holy Spirit was saying, step, step, turn right, step, step. I doubt it was that way. I think it was probably just one thing to another thing to another thing, but they realized this was God. This was God. God showed them. Simeon and Anna weren't just looking for general promises of God. They were looking for a specific promise, and they were waiting for God to fulfill a specific promise. I want to share with you some specific promises that have meant a lot to me lately. I don't think I'll get through more than one, but, and I know that these promises will mean a lot to you. And as I've known people and talked to people, the first promise is something that, a promise that we all cherish, and it's a very specific promise. And it's found in 1 John chapter one. So this is not the Gospel of John. This, you go way to the back of the Bible, and this is uh, one of the three letters that John writes. 1 John, just before the book of Revelation. 1 John chapter one, and we'll look at verses eight and nine. John says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is where? Not in us. Now, most of you, I would say all of you, would never say, I'm without sin. I don't sin. And if you don't sin, I'm talking to your spouse, right? (laughs) We'll find out about that. Or your kids. So we are also, oh, I did meet somebody who said he didn't sin. Klein Jeffries. I'll never forget, the only sinless men I've ever met. (laughs) Klein was an elder to me. He was an elder in the church I was at in uh, college. And so he had this, you know, position of honor. So I want to be respectful and all. And I was respectful because that's the way we should be toward elders. Uh, But he said that he was without sin. And I said, well, Klein... First John 1, 8, 9 says that the truth is not in you if you say that. What do you say to that? I mean, to me, I'm thinking, well, you're a liar. 
I didn't say, you're a liar, Klein. I didn't say that, but I'm thinking it. He says, well, and I said, how can you pray the Lord's Prayer anymore? Because the Lord's Prayer says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, or forgive us our transgressions as we forgive those who transgress against us, right? So I said, you can't pray the Lord's Prayer anymore. And he says, well, I guess not. It's like, Klein, you know, whatever. I'm sure he stood before the Lord and the Lord had a long, you know, talk with Klein. I don't need that discussion. I know I'm a sinner, how about you? In fact, I know it only too well. (laughs) Maybe it's hard for you to forget your sins, but God does. You know, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, it says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. John is saying, I'm writing this letter to you, writing it to you folks in order that you won't sin. I'm giving you counsel. This is a sermon to you, encouraging you not to sin. I'm going to give you some pointers on how you can walk a different way. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the atoning sacrifice, or it says the propitiation, we'll explain that, for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for those of the whole world. First John chapter 2, 1 and 2. I'm writing so you don't sin. No one who's a Christian here wants to sin. If we could sin, if we could press some kind of a, a button that we wouldn't sin anymore, how many of you would push that button right now? Now we would do it, right now. We wouldn't have a second thought about it. We would do it. That's not the way life works. We're in the process of sanctification. We're growing and becoming more and more like Jesus. So if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The word advocate in Greek means a defense attorney. We have a defense attorney with the Father. Now, what is going, what's the picture here? It's not that God is a judge who wants to get us, okay? Obviously, if we stood before God on our own, we would be condemned, right? But Jesus is there, and he is our righteousness. Jesus stands in our place because he died for our sins. Somebody say amen. We have an advocate with the Father. Now, the one who is condemning us, the one who is pointing out the wrong things we've done is who? Satan. He's called the accuser of the brethren. He accuses us before God day and night. We want to forget our sins. He's constantly bringing them up. I mean, what about something you did 10 years ago and it pops in your mind yesterday? Why is that Satan... He is the accuser, and he's thinking, oh, she's almost over this. Well, I'm going to bring it up again. I want shame, shame, shame. Jesus is there, and he says, my blood, I died for her. I died for specifically that sin. And then God, it says, it says in Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now, because of what Jesus has done, no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, when you're in that courtroom and the judge passes a verdict, the judge has a gavel. You know what that is? The judge has a gavel and he'll pronounce the sentence and then the gavel goes boom, boom. That is the word condemnation. There is no passing of a verdict 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. There is nothing that can stick on you. You have a spiritual Teflon on you. No accusation can stick on you because Jesus is your righteousness. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No passing of a sentence. Therefore, why do we live like we are under a sentence? I want you to look at Isaiah chapter 43. This is just one of several passages in Isaiah, more toward the middle of your Bible, that speaks of what God does with our sins. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. And I want us to read it out loud, and I don't care what translation you have. I just want us to read the word, speak the word, hear the word, okay? Declare the word. Isaiah 43, verse 25. You ready? I, I am he who what? Blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. I mean, you could really spend some time on this one. I, that's God, I am he who blots out your transgressions. There is a button on my computer, a key on my computer that I love and hate. (laughs) Tell me which one it is. Delete. Have you ever deleted something by accident? And it went wherever deleted things go. Uh, Somewhere in the universe, there you will see, out in the universe, all the deleted things. Okay. It goes out that way. And it's like, no! Is there any way you can find it? Is there? No. But other things, you just highlight them in as phrase. God has deleted all your sins. For whose sake? For his own sake. Not for, oh, for you, because I love you. God says, I've deleted your sins. I've blotted out your transgressions for my own sake. And your sins I will what? Remember no more. Well, then, if God remembers them no more, why am I? Well, who keeps bringing them up? Yeah. Who do we tend to listen to? Not to condemn you. I don't mean it that way. But we tend to hear that voice because he yells. The Holy Spirit doesn't yell. The Holy Spirit's voice is quieter. Satan yells. The Holy Spirit, hey, that's not true. The Holy Spirit's in you. Satan's outside yelling at you. But the Holy Spirit, hey, 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 Mark. Hey, Mark. Settle down. Remember the truth. That's why you mark this verse in your Bible. And then you put a reference or you draw a line right over to the next chapter, Isaiah 44, verse 22. How about us reading this aloud, okay? I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me for I have redeemed you. I love it. Hey, I've blotted out your transgressions like a cloud. When the sun comes out, the clouds evaporate, don't they? Where the cloud go? I don't know, wherever clouds go. I've blotted out your transgressions. There are my dark cloud of my transgressions. The son of righteousness, Jesus, arises and he blots out our transgressions. There is no record of them. We are acquitted 
okay? When, when we're acquitted, that means that there isn't a record. You go look it up. It's gone. The charges are gone. There's no charge against you anymore. This is a miracle. It's the miracle of justification, the Bible calls it. The miracle of justification. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He took the penalty of our sins for us. I like, back to Isaiah 43, 25, I like the way the New Living Translation translates this. He says, I am he who blots out your transgressions. And then the New Living Translation says, I will never think of them again. Isn't that neat? And then the message puts it this way. This is a, that's a paraphrase of the Bible. It says, but I, yes, I am the one who takes care of your sins. That's what I do. I don't keep a list of your sins. But I do in my mind. And some people, you might know, they keep a list of your sins. I know people that they're mad at me, you know, throughout the years. I've only had like many years for people to be mad at me. That's a lot of people. And they have lists. God doesn't keep a list of your sins. There's no record. David said if you were to keep a list, I'm I'm kind of, I'm not, it's really what it means. If you were to regard iniquity, oh Lord, that means to keep an account, like an accountant has, has a spreadsheet with everything on it. If you were to do that, who could stand before you, God? But there's forgiveness with you, David says. There's no list. There's no list. Therefore, you don't have to be in shame anymore. Because who's there to be ashamed before? God has acquitted you. God has forgiven you. God has justified you. You stand before God perfect and clean through the righteousness of Christ. If we say we have no sin, we're liars. But if we confess our sin, Jesus is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. He's faithful and righteous. You know, the same faithfulness that keeps the sun coming up and down every day, the same faithfulness that takes, gives you a heartbeat right now, that same faithfulness is his faithfulness to forgive your sins. You are forgiven. You're justified. That promise I hold on to. How about you? And that is like an Anna and a Simeon's very specific promise. It's not just kind of a general of the promises of God. That's a very specific promise from God. I don't keep a list of your sins. It's not an accident, you know, that, again, that you're here and, and, our, and we intersect, you know, our paths and you happen to be at this service and all. I think this could be, you know, the, the Simeon and Anna moment in your life where it's like, oh, this is exactly what I needed to hear today. God, you're faithful. And I'm going to tell you, if you keep coming to church and you keep Hearing God's word, God has these moments for you. This moment right now is like me in my library pulling the book and I open up and it's a title of exactly what I need to hear and what I need to understand and be encouraged with. How does that happen? Well, how does it happen that we come here and God knows exactly what we need to hear? It's one of those moments. 
and we miss those moments when we choose other ways. So do yourself a favor this next year. Be encouraged, be encouraged in the word, be encouraged with God's people, right? That's the way to go. And step into this next year, not in shame. Delete. Delete. I will remember your sins for my own sake, God says no more. In Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, God says, I have cast your sins into the depths of the sea and I will remember them no more. Now, there is a practical point of theology that God knows all things. You know, before eternity, he knows everything before it happens. He, I mean, I don't get it all. But here in this, it says, I will remember them no more. I don't know how that works. But God says, I will remember them no more. So when you have the accuser and he's telling you and he's reminding you, you could say, get behind me, Satan. In the name of Jesus and by the power of his blood that has redeemed me, I stand justified, I stand redeemed, I stand clean. Get behind me. In the name of Jesus Christ, I am justified. I am righteous. My sins are not to be remembered anymore. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for your word, for the promise, just this promise you've given it to us. Thank you that you are faithful to your word. All the promises of God are sure. Everyone is true. We ask, Lord, that we would continue in this. It's easy for things to go in and go out as, as quickly as they come into our minds, they leave our minds. And we're just praying that this would soak deep, deep, deep into our lives, that we will hang on to the words that you've given to us, the words that we have held in our hand in your book, in Jesus' name. And everybody said a great big, amen. Praise the Lord for his word. Yay.
Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries has the opportunities for anyone to volunteer in editing, producing the program, or even reviewing the broadcasts at our office. You don't have to be an expert. We are excited to teach anyone that is willing to learn. If you are interested in learning how to be an editor, producer, or even a reviewer, please contact us at 602-866-8999 or email us at heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Following is a program, Transforming Grace. Join me as we take a journey through the book, Transforming Grace. I'm Leslie Martin, author and women's ministry teacher for Calvary Phoenix Church. I am honored to share this book about God's abundant and magnificent grace for all of those who choose to believe. How many of us really experience that truth on a daily basis? When we wake up in the morning, is our first thought, God delights in me. Well, maybe after our first cup of coffee or tea, we can think, God delights in me. For some of us, after our first diet Pepsi, we remember, God delights in me. I don't know about you, but most of the time I'm not thinking that God delights in me because there's this little voice in my head. I'd like to silence it, that keeps telling me how awful I am. It tells me how ill-equipped I am for life and that I'm a miserable failure. The Bible says that God delights in us. Now, most English translations use the word delights, but there are some translations that read, God is pleased with us. That doesn't quite say the same thing to me. Pleased is only an okay word. I'm glad that God is pleased rather than displeased with me, but it sounds a little formal. Pleased is controlled and calm. I think of it as a response to my doing something that prompts God to be happy with me. Oh, I'm so pleased with you. You did a good job. My parents were pleased when I came home with a good report card. Of course, I didn't show them the ones that weren't good because I wanted them to always be pleased with me. My piano teacher was pleased with me if I could perform well. That word pleased is all about me. It's about performance, doing it beautifully, flawlessly, and without mistakes. Don't you agree the word delights is more specific and encouraging than the word pleased? In my opinion, it's far better than pleased. Someone might counter, my version says that God delights in the good or godly man's steps. How could God delight in someone who is living less than a godly life? How do you respond to that? Well, if God is only delighted with the good and godly people, then all of us might as well give up our hope of God's love and acceptance. There is not a single one of us that is good or godly enough. The only way to be godly in God's sight is to be covered with the goodness of Jesus Christ. When we accept Jesus, God views us as perfect because of Jesus, not because of our stellar lives. As the scriptures say, no one is good, not even one. No one has real understanding. No one is seeking God. All have turned away from God. All have gone wrong. Romans 3, 10 through 12. No one is righteous, not anyone. 
God isn't delighted with us because we're godly. He's delighted with us because we're in his son. We're godly because of Jesus. Well, you say, I still don't think God delights in me. I'm always messing up. God's delight is not founded on my performing well, getting straight A's, or being an exemplary Christian. God delights in me no matter what my present state of mind is and no matter how I mess up. God's delight in me does not fluctuate with my actions or moods. God isn't displeased with me when I make a mistake. He's not disappointed in me or disgusted with me for one second my whole life long. God delights in me. He never thinks, I'm so sorry I saved her. Or, you're not really Christian material. I may feel that way about myself. I may think I'm the worst Christian in my church. However, God never thinks that way about me. When I think about the word delight, there are pictures of moments in my children's lives that flash through my mind. I think of my precious daughter, Ellie, when she was about three or four years old. She was swinging at the park while I was pushing her. As I pushed, she was laughing, giggling, and kicking her feet. She kept shouting, higher, 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 in her sweet, high-pitched voice. That's delight. Another moment that comes to mind is that of my gracious daughter, Emily, when she was five years old. Without my help, just some supervision, She made her first batch of chocolate chip cookies. We caught her look of delight and admiration with our camera as she held up her achievement for us. That's delight. There are so many variations of delight. One summer, my husband Mark and I went with our church's high school group to summer camp in California. It was fantastic hanging out with such great teens and dedicated leaders. On the day reserved for Disneyland, Mark and I were invited to join a group of freshman guys. Because I was having a flare-up of my rheumatoid arthritis at the time, I rented a wheelchair. You have never experienced Disneyland until you've been in a wheelchair pushed by a 14-year-old guy. Whoa! Hold on to your hat! Those teenagers were delighted in trying new techniques to scare me. Wheelies careening on two wheels around a corner or being pushed down the hill and letting me go go while I screamed, I'm going to run into somebody. Stop. My ride never quit all day. My delight, however, was very small in comparison to that of my son Daniel when we rode on the Tower of Terror. Oh, yeah, there's nothing like the Tower of Terror to delight a 14-year-old, especially when he looks at his mom whose fingers have turned pale from her death grip on the rail. The more anxious I got, the happier he grew. That's delight. Shining eyes, exuberant happiness, shouts of joy, and exhilaration. Does it seem too far-fetched then to say that God delights in us? That's precisely what God feels, and that's what he thinks. He's delighted in us, and it's his heart towards us. He looks at us with delight, and his eyes are shining. His heart simply overflows with joy. I checked the meaning of the English word delight on my computer. According to the online dictionary, it's defined as a high degree of pleasure, enjoyment, joy, and rapture. Rapture. This is incredible. It's amazing to think that the scripture actually says that God is enraptured with us. 
He enjoys his thoughts of us to the highest degree. Because I considered that perhaps the Bible word for delight might be something a little less exuberant, I looked it up as well. The Hebrew word, chafetz, which is translated in our English Bible as delight, means to incline to, to bend, to be pleased with, to desire, to have or take delight in. The Hebrew and English words mean the same thing. God delights in you and me. He is always looking at us through eyes of loving grace. God is so delighted in us that he can't stop thinking about us. Look again at the first part of the Hebrew definition of kafetz, to incline to, to bend down. God delights in you so much that he is not just standing aloof and only taking an occasional glance in your direction. Oh, how's she doing? No, he's like a parent with a young child who is right down on the infant's level as he takes his first step. Come on, come on, come to daddy. Mommy and daddy have the camera out as they eagerly capture the precious moment. That's God's position. He is inclined. He is bent down. His whole attention is focused on us because he delights in us so much. God delights in you, and he delights in me. You may say, well, I get it. I understand the idea, but why don't I experience this kind of joy in my life? Why don't I feel God's delight and approval on a daily basis? Why do I feel like I'm just sledging through life's never-ending routine of work, responsibilities, and stress while under a cloud of disapproval and condemnation? Why does it feel like this if God delights in me? Those are good questions. And to understand the source of our dilemma, we need to look at the opposite view of God's attitude towards us. The opposite of thinking God delights in me is thinking God condemns me or God is angry with me. Sometimes we think this is the way God views us, but it is the opposite of God's thoughts towards us. The cause of our feelings of disapproval and condemnation, however, stem from living under the law. I hope you enjoyed this portion of God's Transforming Grace. We'll see you next time. God bless. Said the night wind to the little lamb Do you see what I see? Do you see what I see? Way up in the sky, little lamb Do you see what I see? Do you see what I see? A star, a star Dancing in the night With a tail as big as a kite with a tail as big as a kite Said the little lamb to the shepherd boy Do you hear what I hear? Do you hear what I hear? Ringing through the sky, shepherd boy Do you hear what I hear? Do you hear what I hear? A song, a 
song high above the tree with a voice as big as the sea with a voice as big as the sea said the shepherd boy to the mighty king do you know what I know in your palace warm mighty king do you know what I know a child a child shivers in the cold let us bring him silver and gold let us bring him silver and gold said the king to the people everywhere listen to what I Listen to what I say The child, the child Sleeping in the night He will bring us goodness and light He will bring us goodness and We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.